Hello, greetings, how do you do, and welcome to this special one-off and slightly delayed episode of the Kino Quickies podcast. We have a very simple mission here at Kino Quickies. We host live screenings of 1930s quota quickie films, and then we talk about them afterwards. Very straightforward. And when I say we, I mean me. My name is Dominic DeLaghi. I'm a podcaster and stuff like that. Along with my dear colleague, Dr. Lawrence Napper, Senior Lecturer in Film at King's College London. For each screening, we have a different specially invited expert guest, plus the most important element of all, our lively and engaged cinema audience. The question you're asking yourself, of course, though, is how can this be happening? Isn't this a bit like doing an event at the Crystal Palace when the Crystal Palace burnt down in 1936? Well, yes, it's true that our original home, the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey, suddenly went into liquidation and closed down at very short notice in January this year. And it's still empty, by the way, still gathering dust as far as we know. But Kino Quickies is bigger and more magnificent than a mere building. And so, Phoenix-like, we have been reborn, at least for this one-off special. We have crossed the river to the beautiful Garden Cinema in London's West End. And on October the 8th, 2023, we showed The Gaunt Stranger from 1938 to a capacity audience. Eagle-eared listeners will have spotted that this film dates from the very end of the quickie period, and there is some doubt as to whether or not The Gaunt Stranger is actually an actual quota quickie at all, in the strictest sense of the term. Well, we can certainly have a heated debate about that after the film. But enough waffle. Come with me now as we travel back in time all the way back to the afternoon of October the 8th, 2023, where the audience is ready to watch The Gaunt Stranger, but unfortunately, I have to introduce it first. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Garden Cinema for this inaugural Kino Quickie screening, The Gaunt Stranger from 1938. My name is Dominic DeLarge. Over here, we have our resident quota cookie expert, Dr. Lawrence Napper. Um, and we, for the Q&A, we have a special guest, Dr. Adrian Smith, who is coming up from the South Coast and he's delayed, but he, he thinks he will make, I might save that seat there for him, actually, if he slips in there. For those of you who don't know, Kino Quickies, what we do is we screen 1930s quota quickie films and they have a little Q&A afterwards. And we started originally at the Kino Cinema in Bermondsey, but that was shut down. Um, oh, boo. But here we are at the garden. Hooray! Um, which is very nice. So we're going to see how this goes and um, maybe do more, maybe we won't. We'll see how it goes. And for those of you who don't know what a quota quickie is, we might explain that during the, the Q&A, although I'm a bit bored of talking about that now. To <laughs> so, yeah, so The Gaunt Stranger, it's quite an interesting film. It's been on the shortlist. It's been on my shortlist, not Lawrence's, uh, since... Um, <laughs> since we started um, and it, keeps, it kept getting bumped off by other films but we finally got it on there and when we first announced that we were doing this film the internet was literally on fire uh, because somebody happened to suggest on social media that it wasn't actually a quota quickie oh I think I know who said it somebody just said it isn't so um, we're, we're going to pretend that it is for now and then um, and if and we if we decide in the Q and A that it's not a quota quickie, Lawrence will give you a refund. 
Um, and uh, it's based on an original story by Edgar Wallace, uh, the prolific Edgar Wallace, originally called The Ringer. And there were loads of versions of this, um, at least at least five or six versions, one of them in German. Uh, they're all called The Ringer, apart from this one, which is called The Gaunt Stranger. No idea why it's called The Gaunt Stranger. Uh, hopefully our guest, if he turns up, will um, be able to answer that question, or maybe not. Um, and it's a notable film, because it's the first film that Michael Balkan produced at Ealing. Uh, so it's a sort of, it's a mini, mini milestone in UK, British um, cinema history. He, he sort of started it at MGM, and then brought it with him, along with Walter Ford, the director, who was also attached to the project already. And then cast-wise, it's not a particularly starry cast. I think nowadays, vintage film fans might know Patricia Rock. Be still my beating heart, Patricia Rock. Um, it's, I think it's her second film, first or second film. She's not great in it, um, <laughs> to say. She, how dare you? But any film with Patricia Rockin is elevated by her loveliness. And um, for the ladies, the eye candy comes in the form of Sonny Hale, um, who uh, was the, the husband of Jesse Matthews, who's much more famous, one of the partnership. So anyway, that's it, quite a short running time. Feel free to leave the auditorium, get a drink, um, and then we'll set up and then we'll do have the Q&A and it'll be very nice. So um, enjoy the film. Thank you, Gabriel. Thank you, Thank So, as the lucky, lucky audience at the Garden Cinema settles down to watch The Gaunt Stranger, let me just fill you in with a very brief synopsis of what it is they're seeing. There is, at the end of The Gaunt Stranger, a fiendish twist, or two fiendish twists actually, which I think are very difficult to anticipate, but I will be terminating the synopsis before giving away the ending. So we begin with a very inventive and tone-setting title sequence as a policeman patrols a quay by the River Thames in the depths of night. As he shines his torch around, he illuminates posters and signs on the walls on which are displayed the credits. The producer is Michael Balkan, the director is Walter Ford, the film is photographed by the great Ronald Neem, and the screenplay is by Sidney Gilliatt, based on Edgar Wallace's original novel. We then find ourselves outside a large, imposing house which sits on the banks of the Thames in seedy, run-down Deptford. The house, it turns out, belongs to an unpleasant man called Morris Meister, played by Wilfred Lawson, who we soon learn is a barrister, in a time when not many barristers lived in working-class districts like Deptford. But we also discover that he leads a double life, as he's also the biggest peddler of stolen goods in the whole area. This would explain the incongruous location of his palatial home. As Meister plays his piano one evening in splendid isolation, his butler answers the doorbell. Yes? Is this Mr. Morris Meister's? It is. From the Garden of Flowers. It's a wreath of lilies, and the attached note is a death threat aimed at Morris Meister. It reads, R.I.P. To the memory of Morris Meister, who will depart this life on the 17th of November. Signed, The Ringer. Did you say The Ringer? Well, don't be crazy, it can't be. So, this being November the 15th, the murder is due to take place in two days' time. It transpires that The Ringer is actually called Arthur Milton, 
a notorious but very mysterious criminal whose face is known to only a handful of people. The real humdinger, though, is that the ringer is supposedly dead after falling into Sydney Harbour during a gun battle some years ago. The police are well aware of Maurice Meister's criminal activities, but have not so far been able to pin anything on him. They are contacted by Meister's butler about the death threat, so Detective Inspector Wenbury visits Meister's home along with a police doctor, a very wry Scot called Dr Lomond. They're played by Patrick Barr and Alexander Knox, respectively. As they arrive at the house, Wenbury bumps into a woman leaving the property. This is Mary Lenley, played by Patricia Rock. Hello, Mary. Hello, Alan. Haven't seen you for ages. Well, whose fault is that? Oh, nobody's fault, just my misfortune. You're late tonight. I'm a hard-working secretary. I can't spend my time getting about in limousines like you. I like that. I'm here on business. Oh, you mean the wreath? Yes. Do you know anything about this? Nothing, I'm afraid. Except that it's worrying Mr. Meister more than he admits. Rather a gruesome thing for anyone to send. Too bad he doesn't need it yet. Now, Alan, I thought we'd finished with all that. I have to earn my living. You should know that. I suppose it doesn't matter the sort of man you work for. He's always been very kind to me. Oh, of course he always is. That's part of his method. Must you be insulting? Now, listen. Good night. So, just to set up the convoluted backstory, Meister employed Mary Lenley some months ago after her brother, John, was sent to prison for activities related to Meister. John Lenley took the rap for Meister's misdeeds so we can expect him to turn up at some point very ill-disposed towards his former partner in crime. Meister's previous secretary was called Glenda Milton and she took her own life, driven to it, we're led to believe, by Meister. Glenda Milton just happens to have been the ringer's sister, hence the death threat. We also gather, as the film progresses, that the exact time and date of Glenda's suicide was 11.30pm on November the 17th, so that's when we can expect the ringer to strike. Investigations by the Flatfoots throw up an interesting nugget of information. The wreath was delivered by a local florist based in Deptford, and that the person who placed the order was making a ship-to-shore call from a passenger liner called the Baronia on its way to England from Australia, which just happens to be the country in which the ringer was last seen alive. Inspector Wenbury decides to board the Baronia before it docks at Tilbury in the hope of intercepting Arthur Milton before he lands. The problem is that hardly anybody actually knows what the ringer looks like, so in order to identify him, they commandeer the services of petty crook Sam Hackett, played by Sonny Hale, who is currently doing time. They wake him up in his cell and take him to the warden's office. Sam, we want you to help us. What? Help the police, Mr Wenbury? I ain't a traitor to my class. Hackett. Do you remember Henry Arthur Milton? What, the ringer? Him that was drowned? Not half, I don't. You're one of the very few people who ever got a real look at him, right? I lodged in the same house five years ago. Just before he married that American piece. Do you think you'd know him again? Not after the fishes have had their way. Sam, the ringer may still be alive. Oh, you're kidding. It's just possible. We're taking you down to Tilbury to identify him. Thank you kindly. Oh, Nobby. What's the matter, Haggard? Scared? Oh, no. I've always wanted to have my throat cut ever since I was a little boy in velvet drawers. Here, listen. Nosing on a dead man's one thing, but nosing on a live ringer's another. I know a bit about the ringer, not much, but a bit. And I'm not telling that bit. You'll get police protection. Don't make me laugh. He's a killer. Now, Sam, you've still got a year of your stretch to serve. Correct. If anything comes of this, you might get part of it remitted. Here, wait a minute. What's the caper? It might be arranged. This is a very exceptional case. But supposing he is alive? How am I going to recognise him? Don't they call him the ringer because he rings the changes on himself? 
By Ditford, they say he can even change the colour of his eyes. That's an old leg, Steve. On board the Baronia, they discover not the ringer, but a shifty-looking character disguised as a ship steward. This turns out to be Inspector Bliss of the Australian police, who is also on the hunt for the ringer. He has a very particular personal reason for this quest. It was Inspector Bliss who fired the shots which had supposedly sent the ringer to his death at the bottom of Sydney Harbour, and he took a bullet himself in the process. Bliss proves to be a surly and quite bitter man and not the most cooperative colleague, but as they all have the same objective, an uneasy partnership forms between Bliss, Wenbury and the always amused and phlegmatic Dr Lomond. They interrogate Mrs Ringer, aka Arthur Milton's widow, Cora Ann Milton, back at the police station. She maintains that, as far as she's concerned, her husband is sleeping with the Australian fishes, but all the same, they should probably be very vigilant. Wenbury's plan is a simple one. Confine Meister to his home and have the place under 24-hour guard. All of Meister's staff, apart from his secretary Mary, are told to clear out for a few days and the hapless Sam Hackett is dragooned into playing the part of the butler. There's also a sophisticated media campaign. We have been asked to broadcast the following police message. The notorious criminal Henry Arthur Milton, otherwise known as The Ringer, is believed to be alive and in London. Will any person or persons who can give any information which may lead to his arrest or who at any time came into contact with him communicate with the Chief Constable at Scotland Yard? Telephone number Whitehall 1212. No full description of Milton is available, but he is believed to be about 30 to 35 years of age, and it is known that he lodged in a house in Rose Street, Deptford, during the summer of 1934. The police consider it likely that he is somewhere in the Deptford district at this moment, and listeners in that area are requested to bring anything that may attract their attention to the notice of the police immediately. This message will be repeated in the late news summary. That is the end of the news. Hear that? They think he's in Deptford. You better look under your bed tonight. Don't like making people nervous. And then not even knowing what he looks like. During the lockdown of the house, one person manages to penetrate Wembury's ring of steel and infiltrate the premises. John Henley, Mary's brother, who has recently been released from Dartmoor. He's sneaked in by means of a secret tunnel which leads from Meister's parlour down to the foreshore of the river. This is how he smuggles his stolen goods in and out of the house. John is, as expected, furious at Meister for his having spent time behind bars and demands his share of their ill-gotten gains. John is an annoyance to Meister, but he soon manages to dispose of him by sending him on a wild goose chase for the booty, then telling the police where they can find him. Tension mounts as the 11.30 time of death approaches. It all gets a bit too much for Meister, who, upon receiving another death threat from the ringer, this time a verbal one via a gramophone record, drinks himself insensible. Meister! Meister! Are you listening? Wenda Milton died a year ago tonight. She was my sister. I'm coming for you, Meister. I'm coming for you. With five minutes to go, all the main players, many of whom have a motive for killing Meister, are either in or just outside the house. These include Inspector Wenbury, Inspector Bliss, Dr Lomond, Sam Hackett, Mary and John Lenley, and even Cora Ann Milton. At exactly 11.30, the house is unexpectedly plunged into darkness. In the confusion, there's a scream and some scuffling. Has the ringer got his man? Will Meister survive this brush with death? What will the police discover when the lights are eventually turned back on? And who, amongst our cast of characters, is behind this plot? 
Cora and perhaps acting out of loyalty to her late husband. Inspector Bliss, maybe? Is he the ringer in disguise, back from Australia with vengeance on his mind? Maybe it's John Lenley, angry at having served Meister's sentence for him. Could it even be sweet, beautiful Mary taking revenge on her brother's behalf? Well, I'm afraid if you want to find out whether or not Meister makes it through the night and who the ringer is, you'll have to watch the film yourself because Kino Quickies is now officially a spoiler-free zone. I can't find any sites that are currently streaming The Gaunt Stranger, but the film is available on DVD, so I've linked to a few places you could purchase yourself a copy in the show notes. Also in the show notes, as a bonus extra, I've linked to a 1973 BBC radio version of the story, which is very good fun. The show notes can be found at kinoquickies.com. But now the audience at the Garden Cinema have watched the film, replenished their glasses, and are expectantly waiting for the Q&A to begin. Adrian Smith, you'll be relieved to hear, overcame his travel challenges and arrived a few minutes into the film. Let's head back to the garden now to hear what everybody thought about 1938's The Gaunt Stranger. Test those mics. Just say hello. 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 This is Adrian, by the way. He made it. <laughs> I didn't make it, but I made it here. <laughs> he is a gaunt stranger. So, traditional first question. Did you enjoy the film? Good. Who guessed who the ringer was? One person. You've seen it before, surely. Years ago, but the minute I saw Alexander Knox in all that makeup, I just... Okay. What makeup? Yes. <laughs> Very convincing. So the, the first question uh, for... Uh, and normally it's a softball question to the guest. That's how we like to start off. The, the Well, here's something that from the kinematic... Kinegata- Kinematograph Weekly, Kinney Weekly, uh, talking about some publicity that was done by the Odeon in Portsmouth about the about the Gun Stranger. The headline is a powerful lobby display. A man dressed in a long black evening coat with a large question mark across his covered face formed part of an arresting vestibule display arranged by Patrick Reed of the Odeon, Odeon Portsmouth to publicise the Gaunt Stranger. Standing at the man's feet was a card asking. Who is the gaunt stranger? Which is the question that I've asked myself watching this film. Why is it called the gaunt stranger? Which character is the gaunt stranger? It's more like the sort of short, stocky stranger, isn't it? There's no one, nobody's gaunt. No. They're all very well fed. I've always wanted to be gaunt. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we're assuming the gaunt stranger is the ringer and mm. it doesn't quite work. Tell us a little bit about Edgar Wallace, Adrian, and and the the history of this play and what a film and the yeah. it was a play and millions of versions and so well to start with the Gaunt Stranger. So it was a play. Edgar Wallace he wrote in his lifetime. He died when he was only fifty six. Wrote about two hundred novels, dozens of plays. He just was constantly working. He, he was a gambler and he owed money and he needed money and he wrote to make money so he wrote loads of stuff so he wrote this play called The Gaunt Stranger which was a big hit I think it was on at the Wyndham's Theatre wherever that might be near here I don't actually know Um, (laughs) and it was produced by Gerald de Maurier and then it was a big hit so he adapted it into the novel which he and then he changed the name to The Ringer which makes sense because in the play they call this guy The Ringer at no point do they ever say The Gaunt Stranger. So I don't know why that title was ever picked in the first place, but it hung on. So the novel is called, the like the full title is The Gaunt Stranger or The Ringer. It's a bit of a mouthful. 
Um, and that was just one of his very many crime novels. He wrote just tons of stuff. Not only crime, but he spent his younger years in the military, in sort of military service in Africa, and then became a. He, he wanted to write and became a journalist, sort of war correspondent, um, and then based novels. He wrote a load of novels uh, called Sanders of the River, mm. based on his experiences in Africa. Yeah, he just worked solidly. He came from very pover impoverished background, um, and I think he always he was so grateful to be successful and to have money that he spent it all the time. And apparently, he was very generous, and he would give his just give stuff away and give money away, treat everybody, and you know Rolls Royces and chauffeur driven trips to the races and all that sort of stuff. And he'd put bets on for people. And if they lost, he would give them his own money. And he was just a very generous man and everyone loved him. But that meant that when by the time he died, he was very heavily in debt. Um, but all he knew how to do was write. And he wrote so quickly, he would just dictate. He didn't write himself. He had a couple of secretaries and he would also dictate onto wax cylinders. So, so he had a, he could basically you know do a novel in a day. And then he wouldn't even proofread it once it had been typed up because he was already on the next one. So there's, there are occasionally inconsistencies and things don't quite make sense and names change halfway through and stuff like that. But no one cared. They just, just kept going. Once, <laughs> one, It took him a while to have a success and he had, a few, he had quite a few failures early on. Once he hit the winning formula, that was it. Just and he wrote out. one of the most famous films of all time. This one. No. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm thinking there's a clue. <laughs> uh. Yeah, King Kong. It's got Edgar Wallace's name on it. Um, so when, obviously, when the when talking pictures, when cinema started talking, they suddenly needed all these writers. And Hollywood is full of stories of all these famous writers being brought in to be script doctors and all of that. So Edgar Wallace was contacted by RKO and he went over in 1931 with a three-month contract, I think it was initially, to be a script doctor. And when he got there, he arrived in LA, I think on a Friday, and then Monday morning, he'd already written them like three things. <laughs> and they couldn't believe it because everyone else just took forever to write anything. And he said, if you don't like that, I've got five more, you know, that kind of <laughs> So he, he could have had a really successful Hollywood career, but he was probably one of the most unhealthy people. He smoked, the account, by all accounts, he smoked about 80 to 100 cigarettes a day <laughs> and lived on a diet of sweet tea. That was what fueled his writing. And he would write all night as well, sometimes if he had a deadline. And he once said, I wrote it down because I thought it was quite funny. I am physically the laziest man in the world. For 25 years, I've walked on average three or four miles a year. <laughs> so, um, so unknown to him, he had diabetes and various chest ailments towards the end of his life. And he had a cold on the boat on the way over to America and it never really got better. And he also went in the winter and he was working on King Kong and it was going great. He'd written a couple of drafts and then he got pneumonia and died, which was a shame, obviously. Before King Kong had come out. So, yeah, but, and then the directors of King Kong and Marion C. Cooper especially, who was sort of co-writer. And it, to be fair, it was Marion Cooper's idea. And then he got Edgar Wallace writing it for him. And uh, then he just told everybody, oh, yeah, we didn't keep any of Edgar Wallace's ideas. We're just keeping his name on there as a favour. So for years and years and years, it was believed that Edgar Wallace actually had nothing to do with the final film. But since then, actual scripts have surfaced that he had written. And I've read one of them and it's very close. 
to what's in the film. So actually a lot of King Kong is because of Edgar Wallace. And then 30 years so or so after his death, he becomes a, a cult figure in Germany in crimmy films. Could you, talk, could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so his books were translated. I mean, it's, it's hard to comprehend. Millions of his copies of his books were sold. In the 20s, when he was at his height, it was said that one in four books in the UK that were bought were Edgar Wallace books. Um, so, you know, they were just everywhere. So it didn't take long for them to go into Europe and be translated. And they caught on particularly. There was a range of crime novels in Germany um, and also in Italy, uh, published called Mondadori. They're known now as the Jallo books. Um, so these translations were massively popular. So films. So in Germany, um, the company called Rialto did an adaptation of Fellowship of the Frog. These films have got so, the stories got such great names. <laughs> And that was a massive hit for Rialto. So then they just churned them out. They made about 40 films in 10 years. Um, and the Krimis, if anyone, they're called Krimis, which is crime films. They're great fun because they're in German. You've got German actors pretending they're in Scotland Yard and wearing you know, bowler, hats. bowler hats and British policemen's helmets and going to Soho. And so it's, it's this kind of weird fairy tale version of... And they're also contemporary as well. So they're not set in the 20s, they're set in the 60s. So you've got 60s Britishness being done in Germany. It's, they're really fun. And they're very, they're, they're really bizarre, some of them. They get quite psychedelic in places. You know, the sort of secret passageways and hidden weaponry that we saw a little bit of here just gets pushed to the max with those. But it wasn't just Germany. In, in Britain, uh, Merton Park Studios made about 50... Edgar Wallace films in from 1960 to 65. They're known as the Edgar Wallace Mysteries, and they were on. They were televised in America as well, but they were on in cinemas here. I remember them being on TV quite a lot. Yeah. yeah. So up until about 1970, the world loved Edgar Wallace, and then suddenly gone. We've forgotten him. Uh, well, not here. But not here. Thanks. Not here. Um, so, oh, by the way, if anybody wants to shout out from the audience, feel free. But wait for my handsome assistant to bring you the microphone i don't know which one. Oh, it's that one oh, i thought it was a different handsome assistant <laughs> um, take it back now so um right so on to this controversy about the um is it or is it not a quota quickie somebody i'm not going to say who it was out there said it isn't mm. lawrence is it a quota quickie no oh should we go home then? <laughs> that's it but uh it can we can we say that it is because it's good fun and cheap. No. <laughs> oh. It is cheap. I mean, it's relatively, it's relatively cheap. It's clearly, I mean, it, you know, it's not... It, it, it's at the low end of a, of, a, of a normal budget. But, I mean, I guess by the time this film has come out, the quota act has changed completely. So it's like it's been renewed in 1938. The whole range of different... I mean, the like it has been renewed in such a way that the architects of the of the renewal of the act you know, have, have done it in such a way that to eliminate quota quick is that's the whole point of the ways in which they're renewing it. But, I mean, I suppose you could say, it's, it's, as you said at the introduction, it's the first uh, film that Michael Balkan made at Ealing Studios. And, I mean, I guess Balkan's later career is kind of to do with that change in the quota act. So he, Gilmore British, sort of falls apart a bit. Um, uh, and the new quota act says, if you make a massively, massively expensive film... You can count it for quota twice, or maybe even three times. Okay, um, and that attracts American studios who had previously been like, "Well, let's just make the cheapest film possible and like write it off." 
hence quota quickies and they're like oh no let's make some expensive films let's let's really take some mgm really you know opens the studio mgm british employs michael balkan he makes a yank at oxford a couple of others on the on the cards it's just kind of relatively success successful but michael balkan absolutely hates working for mgm so i can't bear the control from america so he leaves and that's the point at which he goes to associated talking pictures at ealing but this is why I at it was the same time so yes, I mean you could sort of say from an American company and all it, that. It, no, you can't. Oh, even just let me have it. But at the same time, the whole of British film industry finance collapses on its arse. So basically, what you've got is you've got companies closing one after the other, and these quite a lot of these productions have to move around as the studios that they're being made in get closed, and that's where CapAd comes in. Um, you know, on the, uh, I don't know if you noticed at the beginning, it's 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 produced by a company called CapAd, and CapAd is the Cooperative Association of Producers and Distributors. So basically, Balkan kind of gets everybody together as everything's collapsing and kind of amalgamates them into this kind of into this Franken film company. Um, so I suppose on that level, you could say it's well, that's good enough for me. <laughs> even. And Edgar Wallace himself was a film director, so you could say that he directed some quota quickies. Uh, yeah, he made he made a film called Red Aces in 1930 that was based on some of his own stories, and he was also made chairman of British Lion. And my understanding is British Lion is basically founded on the idea that it will it will just make Edgar Wallace mm. adaptations. So, like an entire company, a quota company, is mm. is is basically built on Edgar Wallace's name. But obviously, so, he doesn't survive very long no. after that. So, so we're not going to get done under trade descriptions. And for I think we can do what we like, Dom. Can we? <laughs> oh, I never thought of it that way before. Um, nice acoustic, isn't it? By the way, mm-hmm. lovely carpeted walls. So, uh, Lawrence, you wrote about the director Walter Ford for the reference book called "The English, British, yeah. and Irish Directors." Completely forgotten that I'd like, done that, but yes, I did. Yeah. Yes, I'm always. Back I always read day. an article. And go, oh God, it's about bloody Lawrence again, <laughs> <laughs> and the Sunny Hale one. <laughs> um, so Walter Ford's quite an interesting character. He's, He's quite groovy. I quite like yeah. Walter Ford. Tell us about him. Well, he. I mean, he starts out as a as a as a slapstick comedian. He's a silent comedian. He makes a whole series of of, of short films where he is starring as a sort of clown. Walter. Walter does this. Walter does that. At the time, well, I mean, they're not. That's not the little title, but you know, the titles are Walter does blah blah blah. And he makes. I mean, a few of them don't survive, but the the one that does survive that I've seen and is directed by him and stars him is called Wait and See. It's kind of amazing. It's like I don't know if any of you were here for the Last Journey when we showed the Last Journey, and it's basically an extended chase across. Gets in a plane. They're chasing this train, and it gets in a plane. They go in a car, and it's like it's kind of insane. Well, um, Wait and See is like a really sort of intense and sustained version of that where Walter is just trying to trying to chase after this train for the whole 90 minutes of the film it's a silent film yeah it's a silent film and it's brilliant it's it's really good okay um and then later in the sound period obviously he becomes quite a major director for Balkan in the early uh, 30s um Rome Express I suppose is his most famous film um but the other thing that I really like about Walter Ford is if you listen to some of those back to the union's oral history tapes where they basically get everybody who's worked in silent in films British films of the 1930s and they say well you know what was it like blah 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 whenever his name comes up all of the technicians are like oh well obviously he was never on set without his wife Cully Ford 
and she's the one that wore the trousers. So there's a sense in which there's a real sense from the interviews that actually there's a double act there going on, that she doesn't ever get any credit or ever get mentioned in the in the official stuff, but everybody on the set knows that she, they're working together. So I mean, bit like Hitchcock the, and, um, and Alma. Alma. I mean, yeah. a little bit like that. I mean, all of the technical, all the Beck two guys are really rude about her, obviously, because they're super sexist. But <laughs> reading between the lines, it's clear that they're working together, I think. Yeah, I did see one of his silence was on the building site. I wasn't that impressed. But, I'm, <laughs> but then, you know, it was a bit out of context. There's, there seems to be a lot of those wacky, silent, you know, wacky Walter and... There's yeah. a lot of wacky worlds. I mean, there's a lot. They're all sort of precursors to Norman wisdom, obviously. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there's a lot of that knocking and around. And sub-Chaplin, sub-Keaton, yeah. living. Yeah. So one of the things we had in our backwards and forwards, Adrian, is you said there was lots of topical references made by the Sam Hackett character. Oh, say lots. There were really, I picked up on two, and uh, which actually is interesting because in the there's another adaptation of this in the sorry in the fifties another British version by Guy Hamilton. It was his first film. And they do the same thing there. The Sam Hackett character in that film, which is played by William Hartnell, uh, does a similar thing. So I guess it was just par for the course. But, but yeah, there are two that I... References to the 50s, not... Yeah, to, okay. yeah. So it's obviously just whoever plays that character has to bring something in. Like Panto. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, I picked up on Godfrey Wynne, who I think you know who that is. Yeah, I can talk about Godfrey. I was going to do a PhD on Godfrey Wynne once. With oh, it comes to the right place oh. to hear about Godfrey Wynne then. <laughs> there we go. God, he says something like, I think I'm going to write to Godfrey Wynne about this, doesn't he? Yeah. yeah. That's the line. And basically Godfrey Wynne was a sort of agony uncle. Very well paid, highly successful. I mean, I suppose in the same kind of milieu as Edgar Wallace. He worked for the Daily Express during the mid-30s, high, most highly expect, highly paid journalist. Later on in the 50s, he becomes a sort of women's realm columnist. And he's one of those people who is like really obviously gay. Nobody mentions it, but like everybody sort of knows it sort of thing. It wasn't his column called Dear Abby, was there? Dear Abby, yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> is that a special secret clue? That- yes. Most like- <laughs> well, people don't want to write to men to hear how to solve their problems. Because if, you know, they just say, just get on with it. Pull yourself together. Pull yourself together. What are you doing? <laughs> be a very short column. <laughs> the same answer. But I used to I used to work in a reminiscence organisation. I went around asking all these, you know, all these elderly people. This was in the sort of early 90s. So do you remember Godfrey Wynne, Godfrey Wynne? And they were all like, all the, all the women were like, oh, yes, I loved reading Godfrey Wynne's column. He was marvellous. My husband hated him, though. <laughs> <laughs> So he wrote as Godfrey Wynne. He didn't have it. He didn't. He wrote. He wasn't a character. Or I think I don't know about Dear Abby, but certainly he wrote as Godfrey Wynne, and he he certainly answered problem pages as Godfrey Wynne. Yeah. Oh, okay. And yeah. the other one was, was some other weird thing. Reginald Fort, when he says if you, you know something about his organ, <laughs> which is not a euphemism, I think he's referring it's the, to when the policeman has the a baritone. Such a yeah. So Reginald Fort was a uh, organist, cinema and theatre organist, one of those that would rise up and go down again at the Bill end. Deal. And he, thank you. Um, he was also the BBC organist for, it's at some point in the 30s, so he was sort of celebrity organist. I've never been a big fan of those, I have to say. Celebrity organist? Yeah. <laughs> Just that whole world, it's a cinema organ sound. Is not, I mean, like Reginald Fort sold you know, thousands of copies of, of albums of his uh, playing. Is not something I'll be putting on my playlist, I think. But not I think here we had celebrity um, 
What was the mouth organ guy called? Larry Adler. Larry Adler. You wouldn't get that now, would you? The youth of today, they don't know. Yeah, they know. Lucky they are. Yeah. <laughs> um, any questions from the audience, by the way? Oh, there's a hand there. Attractive assistant. Hello there. Um, I think Hackett said something else that puzzled me a little bit. I think he said something like, I'm not. I'm one of the big five. Yes, we um, talked about that. We don't know what that is. Well, I think Lawrence has an idea. I think the big five is supposed to be a sort of circle of mega detectives in Scotland Yard. And if you, the reason why I think that is because if anybody's familiar with the novels of Arthur Ransom, childhood novels, Swallows and Amazons, one of those novels is called The Big Six, and they are pretending to be mega detectives. Didn't last long though that reference is it. Oh, so another hand over there. So I don't. This might this might predate the reference this film, but I actually thought so. There's a group called the Five Eyes that in the intelligence community refers to the U.S., the U.K., Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and they share intelligence information, including Interpol and crime information. So I don't know if that was sort Could of related, well but that was what I thought of when he said that. Could well be. Another one. Another hand there. Yeah, a, a couple of things. I, I thought it was a bit late for the the, the quotas in thirty eight uh, something. The kind of then the production values sort of <laughs> tend to. I thought it was a really nice opening with lots of cross. I thought, oh, this is my now. Yeah, this is kind. Of, and then it kind of settled into several sets, and there was lots of things. But so there was a there was a great deal of element of it. But I also wanted to ask you, well, because quite near here is the Edgar Wallace Pub. It's just off oh, the yeah. street. Oh, yeah. Now, how long was sort of that been there was it really connected to him at all or was he just named after um they renamed it after he died so i think it's been called the edgar wallace since the 30s as far as i know and there's a plaque also on fleet street that was uh put there not long after he died because he was such a well-known figure on fleet street he'd worked for a lot of different papers he'd been fired from a lot of different papers he'd caused a lot of problems and got fired that was quite common in his career actually um but yeah he was because everyone just liked him he may have been a bit of a sloppy journalist at times and not fact-checked <laughs> and then got the newspapers into trouble but he was well loved so yeah so the plaque went up and they changed the name of the pub as well yeah there's a bust of edgar wallace in that pub as well yeah yeah, yeah. well they used to hold the edgar wallace society used to hold their meetings there as well right. yes but, i think if you go in the room upstairs there's yeah. a whole wall full of his novels. i'm not sure if that society still exists i think it was his um one of his daughters kind of was the person who was driving that, but she's gone now, sadly. A hand at the back, I think. I can just see a hand and know of... Oh, yes, hand <laughs> and face. Hiding in the dark, like some sort of uh, Edgar Wallace character. Um, I, I, I kind of want to ask about the Scottish accent, but I think... Um, <laughs> Which uh, one? <laughs> I didn't hear any. Uh, uh, partially because I'm Scottish, but the... One of the things I wanted to ask about was, so Morris Meister's character, I noticed he had um, some scarring on his face, and that's there's often a kind of trope of people with facial disfigurements being used for baddies. And I wondered if that was the case in this film as well, or if that was just the actor. I don't know. I mean, I think they are. I think, I think they're real. I don't think it's... It's not prosthetic to anything, is it? I mean, he's, he's got quite a pockmarked face. He's got, got, he's got quite a weird face in general. Mm. And he doesn't seem to be able to cover all his teeth when he smiles when he yeah. closes a few teeth sticking out the side it's character actor it's yeah definitely not a leading man do you know him have you come across him before i think he plays mr doolittle in the 1939 pygmalion with wendy hiller yeah right. 
and also he plays the drunken father of Cliff Richard in Expresso Bongo. Wow. Does he? He's got a very oh uncle, is it uncle or father? I can't remember. But anyway, he's got he's got a beautiful voice. I mean I think he has got a lovely mm. got a lovely speaking voice, yeah. darling. <laughs> well could, could you take the mic there? Oh, yeah. He he was he was a well known drunk. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yes, uh, if you see a film by Brian Forbes called The Wrong Box, uh with uh, Ralph Richardson and John Mills in it. He plays absolutely brilliantly Wilfred Lawson, a drunken butler. It's worth seeing just yeah. for that. <laughs> so I think they're re real from a life of a bottle. Uh, <laughs> the, the facial things. He's, his daughter was an actress as well, yeah. who died quite recently, Sarah Lawson. And that's the end of my contribution. Well, that's very good. <laughs> yeah, he, in The Wrong Box, his performance is fabulous. How much of it's a performance and how much it's just him, it's hard to tell, but yeah, it's great. Um, who's the glamorous American actress and how did she end up in this film? Well, apparently she was just sort of passing through. What was her name again? Her name was uh, Louise Henry and she happened to be over here working on a play, I think, or doing, she did a couple of films around that time, but her career was in, was in Hollywood. The thing about her is she didn't have a beauty mark and then she did. <laughs> Suddenly it was like um, some blue bottle landed on her face and it, it didn't fly away. You were outraged by that, weren't you? I was, was a bit kind of... He was like, that, that, where did that come from? That's, that wasn't there before. I know, because I, I, originally I thought, it, is it a blemish on my laptop screen? But no, it moves around on the screen here as well. Good. Oh, we've got a, another... Hi, I'm glad you mentioned the beauty mark because that was getting... I remember Godfrey Wren win very well. When they were talking about the organist, I was thinking of Reginald Dixon. Mm. Her, yeah. Organist. Another one. And another thing about this, although I know it's very, very low budget, it should be claustrophobic because it nearly all takes place in this guy's flat, mm. apart from the little scene in Scotland Yard mm. And, mm. and the Sydney boats. But, it, 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 but there's so much happening, you don't notice that it's so constricted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think it's a bit... I don't really think this film is the greatest. No, no, neither do I. No, that's briefing. And I think it's... There's a sort of slight... There's a bit of that sort of like, oh, yeah, he's written it so quickly that it's like it's got all the nuts and bolts of tension, but mm. it doesn't actually have any tension. Oh, I, don't, I really enjoyed it, actually. <laughs> yeah. But normally with films you're here and you're there and you know but in this no you're more or less stuck stuck in this guy's flat all yeah. the time one yeah, yeah. you know yeah one thing i noticed with the um speaking of the sets that it's mainly shot just sort of straight on but then yeah. there was a low angle at the end of a scene in the police station and there was a sort of vaulted ceiling above them mm. which is i think so it's generally quite unusual to yeah, have a yeah. ceiling on your set Obviously, Citizen Kane made a big deal about yeah, that. Yeah. But here's them doing it on quite a cheap film, but then only for one shot, which I'm not entirely sure what the it's point of that was. Just it might have been a set that had been used on yeah. other film that was, you know, but it looked good. Around yeah. Maybe the camera dropped off its tripod. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say something about the sort of the staginess as well, the fact that it's kind of set in this house. It reminded me a bit of a film that I will defend until death, um, The Bat Whispers. Um, which I think is a wonderful film that I'm obsessed with, which also has that kind of, you know, house. There's a sort of mysterious master criminal who's going to somehow invade the house. He's a master of disguise. Who is it? 
etc etc so it kind of reminded me of that although Bell Whispers is probably the better film um, and another thing <laughs> another thing I was going to say I quite liked the bit of sort of jolly unpunished crime at the end right <laughs> because obviously this is the era of the production code so like helpless Hollywoodians like me watch these 30s films and you know crime gets punished and people go to prison and they die whereas here they just sort of fly off into a, a better and, and jollier free future <laughs> and I really enjoyed that so yeah that, that would have contravened the code didn't it the, uh, I think it's because the ringer is sort of an anti-hero yeah it's like a Robin Hood yeah. type because he comes back there's another book um, of short stories of just other adventures of the ringer disguising himself and killing people Right. But they deserve it every time. So, I guess a clear kind of a clear precursor of that is Phantomass, yeah, from the mm. from the turn of the century, which is again a kind of a massive series of of novels, very quickly written. It has all the thing with the you know the secret passages and the rooms and the, the shadow with the, like that, the, the yeah, yeah all that stuff thing, yeah, yeah yeah it's a real tradition of it. Wallace was one of the first writers to write um, crime fiction from the point of view of the police. Like with the fashion was for the gentleman, sort of amateur detective and so on. He uh, he loved Scotland Yard and the police and made them the heroes. So it's interesting that the ringer is not the main character in his own story. It's coming from the police point of view in most of Wallace. He did do occasional sort of amateur detective ones, but predominantly the police are the heroes. Uh, we've got to wrap up. It's two minutes to four. Lawrence, do you want to talk about the exciting thing that's oh, yes. happening here? Thrillingly, and the garden cinema in the next few i think it starts in two weeks time every wednesday they are showing a ealing comedy all of the big ealing comedies basically they show week after week um and some of them are introduced by me some of them are introduced by my colleague from the uh, queen mary's university um Gracia Ingravali <laughs> having a senior moment there um and then after the film there's going to be a little opportunity for discussion in the bar which of course there is right now for you yeah. as well Adrian do you want to plug anything do you have anything you want to plug um, yeah, oh, uh, I talk about films on a podcast you know like everyone else um, I have a podcast called That's Wild idea. it is yeah. <laughs> I thought of it uh, called Wild Wild Podcast which is all about Italian cult cinema and that kind of thing and I also wrote a book about Norman J. Warren that's what I was aiming for so there are still copies available <laughs> quite a few more than I would like so <laughs> please buy one for your friends that's great so if you enjoyed it please tell your friends oh and if you um, when we were at the Kino in the olden days I used to harvest all the data but since we've moved here uh, I don't access the data so if you do want to go on the mailing list drop us a, uh, an email at quickies at gmail.com is that right something like that you'll find it anyway um, and that's it thank you for coming thank you to Dr Adrian Smith for travelling all the way to London to be our excellent special guest thanks also to the brilliant staff at the Garden Cinema including Molly Joe and Gabriel for all your help and the warm welcome will there be any more Kino Quickies well, we never really know, but if you follow us on Twitter at KinoQuickies or join the mailing list by emailing us at KinoQuickies at gmail.com, you will be the first to know. The Kino Quickies podcast is produced by me, Dom DeLaghi, and our in-house quota quickie expert is Dr. Lawrence Napper. That's all for this episode. Keep your eyes peeled for future events, and bye for now. Bye for now.